going to go ahead and talk as you uh, as stuff gets still handed out to you. So here we go. Here we go. It is Easter three, which is uh, normally Misericordia Domini, or Good Shepherd Sunday in the old lexi lexi uh, in the old lectionary. Swear, man, I got the microphone off. <laughs> so uh, here we go. I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. John 10, 11, 27, and 28. O Savior Christ, who dost lead to immortal blessedness, for those who commit themselves to thee, grant that we, being weak, presume not to trust in ourselves, but always have you before our eyes, follow you as our guide, and that you who know the way may lead us to our heavenly desires. With the Father and the Holy Ghost be glory forever and ever to you, O Christ. Amen. All right, uh, just one housekeeping thing. It's amazing how things seem to fall into your lap sometimes. So um, I can't remember what, if it was last week or the time before we talked a little bit about the consecrated elements and what to do. And then, uh, lo and behold, you know, into my box comes this resolution. Uh, from as a pastor somewhere, I'm on, and I'm on some list somewhere, and that's all I know. Uh, I don't think I've ever met him, but uh, he sends me a lot of stuff, so that's good, uh, I guess. Uh, but you remember we were talking about what to do at the end, and then uh, one of the interesting things that, that's happened, um, that always happens when we have a, a bit of a change up in the liturgy, or we do something a little different, or add something, um, often the responses we get is, is that Lutheran? And then what happens next is that people tend to define Lutheran by what their confirmation pastor taught them or what their old church used to do rather than by what Luther taught them uh, and what Luther used to do. Now, having said that, um, Luther is not the highest point. You remember the, the quote we always run on Thanksgiving where Luther says, uh, I'm a bag full of maggots, and so if you, uh, <laughs> you shouldn't really call yourselves Lutheran unless, of course, you want to confess the same Jesus I confess, and then you can just sort of use me as a compass to point you toward Jesus. That would be okay. You can use the name Lutheran if it means uh, everything depends on Jesus. So, you know, it's Christ who gives us Scripture, and then we live in an area, of course, I'm well aware, as you are too, that you can read Scripture in all sorts of ways. So we say then, we read it according to the Lutheran confessions. We know that there are a lot of games with balls you can play, uh, you can play golf, you can play football, you can play soccer, you can play basketball. They're all games, but they don't look the same. So we say our game is the Lutheran confessions. Christ, scripture, the confessions, and then sort of Lutheran smart guys after that. Okay? Lutheran smart guys. Lutheran, Lutheran uh, church fathers and mothers and like that, you see. Margin comments would be the next level, you see. So this is Jesus, scripture, confessions, and margin comments. That's, how, that's, that's, how, that's what we confess. Um, but the other thing to remember is Luther sort of gets bumped up because he wrote a fair bit of our confessions, the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, large catechism, small catechism, great contributor uh, to the Augsburg Confession of the Apology, even though Melanchthon was the writer, and Chemnitz, who wrote the Formula of Concord, uh, the second Martin, about whom it said, uh, if the second Martin had not have come, the first Martin would not have stood. So Chemnitz, who then uh, sort of said, what's the good stuff in Luther? writes the formula of Concord, but he was devoted to saying just what Luther said, and so you see Luther quoted repeatedly. So then um, we do something like, you know, we talk about uh, drain the chalice, or we talk about, you know, uh, how we preserve things in the back, uh, and we sort of look to 
not just what we learned as kids or the congregation that we grew up in, we also look to the long history of the church. So amidst the whereases, uh, you know, whereas uh, this is fifth one down, if you can get a Luther quote, that'd be nice. Whereas Luther wrote in his second letter to Wolferinus, which is referred to in the formula of Concord. This is the fat paragraph in the middle. So this actually, this gets put into our confessions, not just as a letter he sent, but we confess what was said in it. Therefore, we shall define the time or the sacramental action in this way. So if you're going to force me to put a clock on it, okay, I'll put a clock on it. That it starts with the beginning of the Our Father. Now you remember the Our Father is what's prayed just before the words of institution. And lasts until all have communicated, have emptied the chalice, have consumed the hosts, until the people have been dismissed and the pastor has left the altar. So you notice he's not putting a stopwatch on it. He's just saying to you, you want to know when the supper happens? The supper happens from, kind of revs up during the Lord's Supper. Give us this day our daily bread, right? Provide for us. Sort of revs. And that, the reason he says that is in his liturgy. That was the thing that was immediately before the words of institution. So it starts at the words of institution. And then it ends when you've done everything you've been told to do. Eaten and drunk everything. And so then it's very difficult, or maybe not, for us to eat 300 hosts if we're, if we're long. I mean, we've thought this through. You know, I mean, we really have. Uh, maybe the last, the last table should consume 10 hosts apiece. Maybe we should do that and eliminate all the questions. What we can do is empty the chalice at least. Emptying the flagon is going to be a bit of a pull. Uh, you know, that would, be, that would take a little bit of doing. But at least what they say is, you know, consume everything. In this way, and now here you see the pastoral care, in this way we shall be safe and free from scruples and scandals of endless questions. When did it start? When did it finish? What's the difference between a host on the altar and one that's not? What's the difference between a host on your tongue and one that isn't, you see? If you just do what the Lord tells you, it takes away all your questions. It's great pastoral care. Dr. Philip, that would be Melanchthon, his sidekick, who was the greatest Greek scholar uh, of his day, defines the sacramental action in relation to what is outside it, that is, against reservation of a procession with the sacrament. He doesn't split it up, nor does he define it in such a way that it contradicts itself. Therefore, see to it, now again, if anything is left over of the sacrament, either some communicants or the priest himself and his assistant receive it, so that it is not only a curate or someone else who drinks what is left over in the chalice, but he gives it to others who are participants in the body of Christ, so that you don't appear to divide the sacrament by bad example or treat the sacramental action irreverently. That's my opinion. I also know it's Phillips. So the two greatest lights of that time say this is what you should do. Lest you think that that went out of style then, here's Walther. Fast forward, um, you know, to the mid-1800s. So, you know, uh, 350 years later, in his pastoral theology writes, should anything of the consecrated elements be left over, the wines to be drunk up, maybe in the sacristy by the communicants at a particular celebration by the lay officers or by the sacristan. So you you can do it at the altar or you can do it later. Under no circumstances, however, is consecrated to be mixed with unconsecrated wine or in any way be put to common use. It went to the altar, it bore Jesus. And that's what our altar guild does very reverently. They do keep things separated back there. Such wine can be used if needed for sick communion, even though in this case, it needs to be, and then reconsecrated is probably not a great translation. Probably just consecrated would be better. It's kind of like if you have water in the name, you've got a baptism. There's no such thing as rebaptism. 
if you have verba, bread and wine, you have a supper and there's no such thing as uh, re-suppering, you know, re-consecrating. So anyway, just uh, sometimes, there's a, sometimes there's the shock in saying, well, I never saw that before. Um, and then we sort of say, well, sure, we've been always, and then and it's, well, and then, well, I never saw that before. So every once in a while, and that, that sort of fell into my lap this week, so uh, I just thought I'd give it to you. Okay, is still okay? I could say any questions, but that would be then the third week running where we didn't do what we were going to do. So I'm a little nervous about that. All right, flip open to First Peter. We can carry on that discussion someday if you want, but just, just let that settle in sometime. Okay. All right, First Peter 2. Now you remember we just sort of, um, we sort of regrouped last week, and you remember what you're thinking about now. This is a sermon for new Christians. It's given to them after the baptism, but the old Christians are listening in. If they don't listen in, then they'll find these excited new Christians kind of annoying. And besides that, because they're so excited, you know, so enthusiastic about they just got saved, and we're going straight to hell, and now it's better. And sometimes old Christians can be a little bit like this about that. So then, uh, you know, then, then, then the old Christians get to listen in, and sometimes, um, actually, old Christians can, instead of being like this, they can be kind of sitting on their hands sometimes. So Peter says to them, okay, now, here's the deal. This is what it looks like. You're exiles and strangers. You've been sort of, you know, pulled out of the world like a tooth is pulled out of somebody's head. Uh, you know, you're put aside. You're something special. You'll always be different. And then we saw this brilliant naming of people just like you and me who are not Jews, not Israelites, and yet they nevertheless get the title royal priests, that is, priests who are in service to the king. Not just any old priests, but the royal contingent. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. We, we read that every Christmas, but we should read it with the understanding that it's pure grace. Um, there's probably not, you know, there's probably not five people in this room with Jewish blood. Uh, if there is, bless you. Uh, when, uh, when the Lord was picking up teams, he picked you first. Uh, that was nice. Um, the Jews are his folk. But you and I, we get adopted in to be exiles too. Now, part of being in exile is being different. And what you saw spun out so far is the differentness of life. And so uh, it, it, it's not a differentness where, where the Lord says, you know, okay, now I'm going to take all your fun away. It's the differentness of saying the whole world is going straight to hell. I mean, the entropy of the universe is the reason evil works so easily is it has the natural motion of the universe on its side. Right? If we really believe in original sin, if we really believe the universe is corrupted, the reason that, that, that evil comes so naturally is because it is the character of the universe. And left alone, the world will spin down to its own damnation. Okay? And that's going to be important in just a second when we talk about what it is to be church. Left alone, the world will spin down to damnation. Opposite that is the great gift of baptism and life within the church, and that's where you are today. So 1 Peter 2, 11. Agapatoi, the new vicar, Brian Crane, our guy assigned, second career guy who worked in Washington, D.C. seven, eight years. I don't know if he carries a gun or not, but he is a, uh, and you're tough today, but he is a, 
Actually, from now on, all the pastors are going to carry guns. He doesn't. He doesn't carry a gun. He's very mild-mannered. Really? Well, that doesn't, there have been mild-mannered people who've carried guns before. But <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just see. But I understand that he's, uh, you know, like all other vicars we had, fiercely bright, uh, particularly in Greek. Do you know that about him? That's what I've heard. It's funny. Well, not, now those sorts of things shouldn't be held against a man. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I have some Stanford sayings for USC, but they're not polite enough. I mean, without the band, they just don't have a context. So, ah, uh, <clears throat> oh, yeah. Ah, oh, I should. I was, I was about to tell you about the Mao death show as paradigm for administration, but I'll just move on. Okay. So, uh, anyway, so so the you know the new guy will have to work. Anyway, if he were here, he could tell you about this word that just gets kind of simply translated as beloved, which doesn't really doesn't really get it. It means the damned sinners who were loved for no good reason and have now been pulled into life and are counted upon to love other people, those people, which you've heard translated as exiles. This, it uses the word, you remember there's a couple of different Greek words for love, but this one is the selfless sort of love that, that, that makes Jesus, when he has to kill you or kill his own son, I'm sorry, when the father has to either, either his, the father's choice is to kill you or to kill his son, what he chooses to do is kill his own son that you can live. That's agape, and that's what makes you agapatoi. Okay, so try to, try to take the seriousness of what you've been called into. You, you live because somebody else died, beloved. That's what beloved means. Okay, so that's who you are. Beloved, I beg you, and this is a really interesting word, because it can mean, I urge you, I admonish you, I beg you, I beseech you. It can mean all of those things. Really interestingly, it can also mean, I comfort you, which is a great gospel translation. You know, I, I beg you as aliens, but also I comfort you. I remind you who you are. I, I get you going in the way of the gospel. I comfort you as aliens and exiles because it's really difficult. We got sort of a, a tough note. Um, you remember the, uh, gosh, I'm losing my memory. The, the Russian oil dude who's in jail, what's his name? One of the oligarchs. The, uh, Borovsky, is that his name? Help me out. Do you people read the newspapers? I know you do, come on. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about. The Russian guy who got, slipped in and bought one of the big oil companies, and now they're taking it away from him. They put him in. You remember he got slashed? Do you see this? It wasn't probably an assassination attempt, but he got cut across the cheek, and then there was this big thing about, well, they're not taking care of him. I mean, it's an intimidation attempt. The Russians play very rough. But the most interesting thing about that is he was in prison in Chita, which is one of the places you support. You remember when I told you I went as far as the roads would go, and then you can't get any farther unless you hike, and then you get the river, and then you can take it 300 miles to the Sea of Japan. Where we stopped and the roads don't go, Chita is beyond that. So this guy is out in the middle of nowhere. Well, we got a letter from our guys who said they're having a real tough time doing missionary work in that thing because uh, it's like a small town anywhere but with this Russian flavor. When people convert in that town, they're immediately ostracized. And what they found in their new converts is they have a very high rate of alcoholism and depression then. You know, already these things happen in Russia. 
anyway. It's cold, it's dark, and there's nothing to do, and people are just horribly poor. One of the really interesting things is they, when people have converted in this congregation, they just, they just have been brutalized by the surrounding folk. That's what this is talking about. You're in exile. You know, you don't belong anymore. If you're going to be baptized, really, when unbaptized people figure that out, they're probably not going to have anything to do with you anymore if you're living a Christian life, or unless they're excessively tolerant. So it's a really a difficult thing, you know. Beloved, those for whom Jesus died, who love you for no good reason, I beg you as aliens and exiles, now here's your choice. I mean, this is early martyrdom. Give up Jesus and live. Or the other side is, I beg you to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. And that's kind of where we're going today. This word, uh, aliens and exiles, outsiders, is the word that was used for Abraham when he left Ur and went to a new place. So you're like Abraham, you're like the Jews, you're like the priests, you're like the early Christians, you're like the martyrs, you're like the baptized in First Peter. Sometimes American life is too easy because it doesn't sharpen up our edges enough. Now I was wondering, as I noted here, I'm at point three, kind of halfway through, can you wear that joyfully? And can you teach your kids to wear it? Can you say, um, we don't do that because we're Christian? I wonder if it's possible for us to say that. This is a little bit about Schleck's Easter egg thing this morning. You know, you can, you can there, there, are, there are lines which you cross, and once crossed, you lose the substance of what it is you're trying to teach, what it is you're trying to be. So, uh, I, I think Pastor Schleck would probably say this, given what he said this morning, that an easy church is not always a faithful church. You know, it's not easy to have a great big church. It's not easy to have five or 10,000 people. That is not particularly difficult. Um, it's very difficult to have a great big church that's really faithful. It's very difficult to have a really small church that's faithful. So you should be careful in your measuring up of how things run in the world. Um, that you don't judge by appearances. One cannot judge the success or failure of a church very easily. And one cannot judge the success or failure of a church by the natural standards by which all other things are judged. The success or failure of a church is judged on a single criterion, which is whether or not that church delivers Jesus in the way that he chooses to be delivered, word and sacrament. If you have folks gathered around pure Jesus, which would be pure word and pure sacrament, then you have church. If you don't, if any of those things are wiggled, Jesus, the word, the sacrament, or the people, you have less than what is certain. One can't chase all the way to say that it's no longer church, but you have less than what the Lord intends to give you. And what this is trying to do in Peter chapter 2 is to preserve you from that uncertainty. Okay? So, one of the things that you'll immediately run into is the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. 
uh, abstain, and this is horribly important, abstain means to flee. The word technically means to keep your distance or to be estranged from. You, you sort of have, I don't know, you have people, I, this might have happened to you once, you can, can you think of one person you don't like? You shouldn't all think of me at once, okay? But give me a pretty bad vibe. There, finally got to you, okay. Uh, think of somebody you don't like and, and feel the discomfort when you meet them alone in a hallway to say hi. Got it? You feel that? Or if you've ever fought with your wife, I know this is strictly hypothetical for y'all, but uh, say you ever fought with your wife just once and then sort of the first time, you remember what that feels like? Kind of like when you push two magnets, you know, to the opposite ends in science class? That's how you should feel when you brush up against sinful things. Now the reality is we often feel just the opposite. Why? Because we have original sin in us and we see, uh, we see sin going on and we go, my people, you know, these are my people. You know, you think about the whole Duke thing. There was a brilliant article that somebody forwarded me about the Duke thing, which was sort of a good common sense article that said something like, um, if girls didn't strip and boys didn't watch strippers, none of this would have happened. Well, there's some interesting uh, <laughs> advice. Uh, you know, you think to yourself, hmm, if people weren't attracted to that, if they instead had this sort of, as the closer they got to it, that they, you may have all had the, uh, ha pastors talk about this from time to time, where they get in the presence of somebody really evil and it's, it raises the hair on the back of their neck. You've probably had that experience too. Beyond that though, what he's trying to get you to do is have that experience when you bump up against any evil, run-of-the-mill evil, little evils, everyday evils, that you would feel a discomfort in the presence of evil rather than a comfort or even an engagement. I give you two verses there beyond this. 1 Timothy 6.11 is the best one. Flee temptation. Doesn't mean stand around, doesn't mean engage it, doesn't see how long you can go until you fall into it. Psalm 1, go read Psalm 1. You know how sin works? This is the way sin works. People walk by it, but then one day they stop walking by and they stand and watch it, and then one day they sit down and having sat down, they finally engage it. Blessed is he who doesn't walk in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. That's how sin works. As long as you walk by it, you're fine. If you stop to look, you begin to be pulled in. You sit and watch it, you'll be intrigued, and you touch it, and you're dead. That's the way sin works. Which is why he says then, abstain from evil. You should actually flee it. You should have a physical reaction to evil in your presence. And you should actually get the heebies and the jeebies. That's what should happen to you, okay? You should just... So, beloved, I beg you as aliens, I comfort you as aliens, it's going to be okay. I beg you as aliens, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul, right? Now you'll say, and, and this is one of the nervous points, which passions are these? And the answer is the Lord has given you the ten words to sort that out. He has given you the ten commandments. He's given you the catechism to show you where the boundaries are. To stay within the boundaries of the catechism, you should... Um, say, thank you very much. Things like, uh, um, you know, love the word of God and the preaching of it. You know, third commandment. Or um, sixth commandment, lead a chaste and decent life. Thank you very much. Or the eighth commandment, put uh, the best construction on everything. 
or uh, the seventh commandment. Do you teach your kids to give back more change? When they get extra change, do you give it back or do you put it in your pocket and say, ooh, we foxed them again? You teach your kids to give change back, urge them to stay and do their duty. That's how the catechism says. Help him improve and protect his property and business. See, all these things, very practical things that we bump into every day, you can either take that as a comfort. How can we help this person? You give them back the change. You don't talk ill about them. You be respectful of your wife, which means you never even look at another woman. You're in church every Sunday because that's what your kids need. Right? You take that as comfort. I know it makes you look strange, especially on a day like this. There was nobody out today, was there? Except you, because you're weird. But it's okay because you're the Lord's weird, and he loves you that way. Okay? And I just, at the bottom of the first page, give you, out of the heart proceeds. You remember that out of the heart proceeds. Now, at the top of the page, a little extended riff on this. Why should you do this? Why do you flee passions? And the answer is because it ruins your soul. But here's the bad bit. Not all at once. The really interesting about sin is it kills you slowly over time. It's all the little evils that stack up. So, as I put it to you, they strategize, they engage, they enslave, and then they ultimately destroy your soul in the way of parasites, which kill you slowly for their own benefit, adding you to the world's horrible total and drawing the cosmos down to a chilly, damned end. Or one of my favorite verses in scripture, you know, you learn all these great verses in scripture, like uh, the Isaac story. I can't believe the vicar didn't make more of this. He was so keen on that story where Abraham says, you stay here with the ass while we go worship the Lord. I like that one. I like, man, you're tough. I like, uh, I like uh, the one that says, the Philistines one day, the King James says, uh, they woke up and found themselves dead. You know? <laughs> This is a great, it's a great little story about one time where the Lord comes and smites the Philistines when they're, doing, they're trying to do in Israel. Uh, they, they woke up and they found themselves dead. That's what happens to you. You wake up one day and you find out you're dead. And then you sort of go, how, how did that happen? How, how did we get to be dead? And the answer is because you didn't abstain, flee, have a physical revulsion to all the little evils around you, so they attached themselves to you like parasites and they sucked everything out of you, right? Now, I observe for you there that this happens individually and collectively. It hurts you just a little bit every time you sin. And you remember there are some sins that stick with you. There's the very interesting passage in Paul where he talks about how sexual sin really does a person in. Now, why is, and that, that's led the church to have all sorts of, you know, have hives over sex for some reason. Uh, but what, the re, why, does, why does Paul use that example? You know, he talks, about, he talks about sexual sin really doing in. Why does he do that? Because he understands how people are wired and that, uh, you know, <laughs> despite what the post-postmodern age says, you really can't divorce sex from everything else. Or you can't really divorce body from mind and spirit. It really is impossible, you're one bundle. And if you get one bit of it, this is why people who get chronically sick, for example, also suffer from depression in their mind, or 
uh, darkness in their souls. This is why people who get darkness in their souls have physical reactions to it. You know, this is why when people come in uh, uh, for spiritual care, first you see if they need psychological care because spiritual care works in a very human and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and wonderfully reasonable way and if you can't speak to them reasonably, it doesn't always work very well. You chase your tail. See, you're all connected. So any sin anywhere is uh, to do you in, and collectively that's true too. This is why Jesus is so clear in Matthew 18, if there are sinners in the midst of the congregation, and the sin is so great, so as to damage people, from time to time, then that sin has to be exposed. Now, you need great pastoral care with that. That's where excommunication comes from. And that's always done for the good of the person being excommunicated. Why do you do that? Because as Paul understood in 1 Corinthians, if you let sin fester, remember in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, you got a man in your congregation sleeping with his mother. Even the pagans don't do that. What's the matter with you people? You're Christians. Even the pagans are offended by that. Okay. So with your sins, you not only do yourself in, but you also um, do in those around you. Um, so I, I, I then sort of, uh, uh, you know, I will, I will make this as specific as possible. You know, all the change in the air. I want to remind you of something. Is you need to cling to something, cling to this. Churches don't collapse. They are destroyed. Make no mistake about it. Churches are destroyed, but churches do not collapse. Churches rest on the foundation of Christ. You are living stones. Build up into a holy house. We've already done that. Churches don't collapse because the Lord stands by his church. Um, there will always be a church until there's no more world. Churches don't collapse. However, churches can be destroyed. And this is where folks need to be extraordinarily careful. Churches are destroyed um, in one of two ways. When either they get covered up, where they're buried, either just shovel things on them until uh, nobody can see word and sacrament anymore, or they are destroyed when they go unused. When the Lord is there trying to agape people every Sunday, and then people just sort of say, well, I won't have any of that. Oh, just a little gossip would be good for us. Right? Just a little hate. I could hate the people that I want to hate. I'll love 80%, but there's 20%. The church would be so much better without them. Right? Just a little lack of trust. Right? Or just a little bit of putting the worst construction on things. Little lies. That's how you destroy a church. The church doesn't clap. It is collapse. It is destroyed either when it's covered up by sin or when it's neglected. Now, the opposite thing is, and this is what you should take great comfort in, because churches don't collapse, because the Lord tends his own, because the Lord honors the third commandment, because Jesus himself shows up today to baptize that little pagan coming at 11.15. Don't tell his parents. Because he gives his body and blood into you. 
because he puts his word into your ear, because he loves you even though you're unlovable, because Jesus gives and gives and gives. Churches don't collapse. Here's the bonus. Just as sins stack up and do you in, sin of the body hurts the soul, sin of the soul hurts the mind, sin of the mind hurts the body and hurts the soul. So too, grace given into the body. Take, eat my body for your forgiveness. The physical touch of Jesus forgives the sins of your soul. Right? Jesus stood among them and said, peace be with you, two weeks in a row now. The physical hearing affects how their souls carry on and spurs their emotions, joyfulness. If you want your congregation to flourish in, in spite of any change or anything that happens, especially in spite of persons, whether they come or whether they go, the way that a congregation flourishes is when they tend things that are more, more important than persons. They tend Christ and scripture and, and sacrament. And when that's done, then sort of people, you know, sort of just carry on. And you'll notice then, um, there are people who are shaken by things and people who aren't shaken by things. And the common denominator of people who are not shaken by things is that they are heavily dosed with word and sacrament. That they've been protected. That they understand what it means to say, I comfort you. And more than that, it's been built up in them. Occasionally, you get a new Christian who shows uh, an instant bit of maturity and comes into full use of the church very quickly, but it is rare. The more common thing that happens is that sin is so deeply rooted in us and we are so given to act like the society that lies around us, the more common things that happens is that people grow into maturity that it is by the repeated exposure to word and sacrament over a lifetime that people come to the sacramental reality that God can have some use of them. This is why in the scriptures there is the admonition that new Christians ought not to become pastors. Because it's too easy to take them out when things get tough. This is great stuff. Here is the solution for all ills in the church. Cling to Christ repeatedly daily. Cling to your baptism. Kill your old Adam, wake up a new man. Read your scriptures. There grace comes. Say your prayers. And receive the Holy Supper over and over and over again. Do this often, again and again and again is the literal translation. This is great stuff. Churches don't collapse when they stay near to Christ. They can be destroyed when they take leave of Christ, either by covering him up or by ignoring him. You'll all be fine if you tend Christ. He's here given his gifts. He's here to love you. It'll all be fine. Now, what you'll need to do specifically, especially in the next month or two, or three, or year, or two, or three, is that you'll be taking leave of those people who would be sinful, who would draw you into lies or gossip or mistrust or doubt. That would be the opposite of Jesus. That would be antichrist. Christ is solid, certain, sure, giving, gracious, merciful. The bonus prize would be 
if you could not just flee what is evil, but then also live as one who has been loved. That's how you go forward in the faith. And it doesn't matter if there's change all around you or if there's no change at all. It, it is the life of a Christian. Your, your, your day looks the same, whether all hell is broken loose or whether, whether it hasn't. You get up, make the sign of the cross, say your prayers, go about your business, live within the ten words, and come to church on Sunday. If you don't, you're on your own. Individually and as a, as a church, then you're on your own. The, all bets are off. You, you've submitted to the entropy of the universe, and it spins downward to death. However, the good news, you want to insulate yourself from that? You want your church to flourish? You want to be the body of Christ? You want to live up to your title as royal priests, as those grafted in? Word and sacrament. The really present Christ. The presence of God in your midst. That's all in this text, verse 13. Maintaining good conduct among the Gentiles, so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Times of change and stress are either your greatest opportunity for witness, or they're the most awful thing that can happen to you. And it's up to you. Whether you'll tend the things of God or not, will determine what will happen to you individually and to us as a congregation. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles so that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What you're trying to do is live for other people and you may not let anything you say or do destroy yourself, your church, or pagans who don't know any better. Now all that's nothing new. And partly that's the good news of this. You've been hearing this for years. You've been doing this for years. So you stay the course. You stick with what the Lord has given you. And then come what may, you're in God's hands. So all is well. Let's pray, let's go. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.